there's probably not been an episode of the show where the tone, tenor, and pace of the theme song doesn't match the content. It's going to be a heavy one today, but it's some important work. We'll get started on it right after this. I am certainly given to some amount of not frivolity, but general fun and winsomeness to start episodes of the show. It's supposed to be why the theme song is so happy, but listeners of the Court True Act Show, friends, family who listened, we, uh, we, we got some things to discuss, and they are not light. It's so much so I don't really even want to get into all the niceties and introductions. Uh, there's, there's comfort in routine in any way in which sometimes in the world where we can stop feeling comfortable, even if it is the meaninglessness of not having the routine at the top of a podcast, I think it might be helpful, especially for the discussion we're going to have today. The one introductory thought I need to give is I outlined a show for you. I did that a few weeks ago, and for that Ahmaud Arbery and Plandemic episode, it's now the third most listened to episode of the show. Thank you for helping that happen. But I wrote down a lot of things to say, just like I did on that episode. Got a lot of positive feedback from it. But as I write a lot of it down, I know it's stuff that I've said many times in our four years together, or however long you all have been here. But I think it's important things to say again. I also don't have any delusions of grandeur. I know I'm not significant. I know that some thousand and some odd people listen regularly together. And the best I can hope for, at least where I am in life right now, is that a thousand and some odd people would listen and just have better conversations. Would listen and be slower to speak and more quick to think. Slower to speak, more quick to empathize. Consider that we might have an idea wrong. That might be all the impact I have, and that's okay. But we need to do that stuff today, and the stuff I've written down to say is stuff that you might have heard before, but it's important to reiterate in this context. One other thought is one you've heard a lot before on the show, too. Small minds, here's the quote, small minds talk about people, medium minds talk about events, and the big minds talk about ideas. Well, we are going to start with people and events because they matter. People and events matter because people matter. They're made in the image of God. Well, I don't want to linger there. There are intellectual, philosophical, spiritual implications to the thinking that led to the events and these people. So let's start there with the people and the events. Since the last time we were together, most of us, I think, have seen at least still images of George Floyd suffocating to death at the, under the knee of an officer. Since the last time we came together, that video has come out of a 47-year-old man from Houston, Texas, an athlete, a musician, from what I understand, a fellow believer who found himself in adult life in Minneapolis doing something he shouldn't have done, but in his altercation or his interaction with police unjustly being ne- negligently slaughtered I don't know what the proper term is. I know that he was unjustly killed. And 
I will admit my own cowardice and that I have not been able to watch it. I can't do that. I don't, I don't, ha- I don't have the, the emotional and mental, st- I hate to say stability, I don't mean stability, I just can't get the right word, to watch a man dying, and he knows he's dying. People around him suspect he's dying, and he knows he's being killed and no one will help him. I can't watch that. So that took place. And then the world responded. There were protests. There was one here in Greenville, downtown. I went. 250, 300 and some odd people. Peacefully protesting. Bringing attention to the injustice that is, is being rectified and what happened to George Floyd. Some of the reactions around the country, though, were not peaceful. There were riots. There was looting. We have then the reaction to the looting. We've got the reaction to George Floyd, and then you have the protests and the, the destruction of property and the reaction people have given to that. Those are the events that have happened since we last came together, but they also come in larger context. They come in the context of just in the last month, Ahmaud Arbery unjustly being murdered or slaughtered by someone who had no authority to accost him or challenge him. It comes in the context, and I'm about to give you two more that you think you're, I think you might think, hey, that's a little less significant. Maybe you shouldn't talk about those, but I'm going to bring these around. They're important. It also comes in the context of a moment in the last few weeks that a video went viral of a white woman in Central Park with an unleashed dog saying to a man, a black man who challenged her on her breaking the rules and, and letting her dog off the leash, that she was going to call the police and tell them a black man was intimidating her or whatever the word she used was. She, and there was the reaction to her. She lost her job. Her life is at least ruined for a time. There's a second video with a couple million views now out on Twitter of a white older man in a gym in his basically his apartment complex and a, a, a group of four African-American men. It's clear that three of them don't live in the building. They're being let in by a friend who does live in the building. And the, the rule of the gym is you're only supposed to use the gym if you live there. And they have uh, not an argument or an altercation, but a discussion about it. And that gets called another piece of, of racial of racial disunity. Uh, and so we have all of it brewing together. We have George Floyd and Arbery cases of death. We have conflict between white and black on the internet being videoed now, and it's leading to this cacophony of noise of disunity around matters of race. And it feels incumbent upon us, from a Christian perspective in particular, to talk about it. It feels incumbent upon me, especially from a Christian perspective, to be voices of reason and reconciliation and care and empathy. Because it's clear that we're broken. And I don't know of another worldview that can address it. I don't know of another philosophical system that can actually provide some kind of harmony where people who have no unity can find some kind of reconciliation for each other. And so those are the events. Those are the people. What are the ideas? 
Now, here's one of the challenges of talking about this. There are a lot of different ideas and policy and policy and and, th- and thinking around this, and they all are related, but they have distinction. So I'm about to bring to you several topics that have to get discussed, several ideas behind the events, and they all feel like they're they're going to be in the same vein, but in some ways they are. In a lot of ways, they're not. Because I know this, I'm going to say things through the next 50, or I guess we're down to 42 minutes, that all of you will find some exception with. And I'm not even sure I'm right, guys. When I say something you find exception with, I'm willing to hear that out. Here is what I need for all of us to do. This is one that I won't hear out. I'm confident in what I'm, what I'm about to say. The thing we can't do, the thing that we will serve poorly ourselves, will serve poorly our neighbors, we will serve poorly trying to mitigate and minimize the next, the, the, or excuse me, mitigate the tragedy or minimize the next time an Ahmaud Arbery or George Floyd starts. We will hurt our chances of doing what it is we want to do if, we have this conversation in a good, a good guys, bad guys context. If we just think there are good guys and there are bad guys, and the good guys can do whatever they want, the bad guys can, uh, are, are condemned, if we do that, we will fail this conversation. Because while there are good people and bad people, at least in terms of behavior, the core is there's good ideas and bad ideas, and then there's consequences to good ideas and bad ideas. So we don't judge groups. We judge the ideas behind the individuals. It's, it's one of the most dangerous things Americans do, and I see it everywhere. It, it's not good when anyone talks about what, what black people do this. Black men are this way. It's also poisonous to talk about old white men are like this. It's bad to say Hispanics are like this. Or here's a stereotype about Asian people. You know, well, you know how women are. All of these are two things. They are unhelpful. There's not practical to the discussion. They are also unbiblical. The biblical worldview does not do that. This is what I'm talking about with things I've said before. I've said this on this show a hundred times already and only 200 and some odd episodes of having it. We don't judge people by their group identity. We judge people by what they do, how they behave, what they believe. I am judged not by my membership in groups. I am judged by how I equip myself in the world around me, how I love my neighbor and follow my God. So if you are holding on to any worldview that says there are good guys and there are bad guys, I know what team I'm on. Let me ask you, let me humbly ask you, jettison that. Throw it away. You aren't going to help. You're not going to help this injustice. You're not going to help the conversation. If we're, going, if we're going to have a better people, one of the things that we're going to need to have is better conversations. And if we go into them with teams on and knowing who the good guys and the bad guys are, we will not have better conversations. So you know the events. George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, rising conflict on the internet with these things like the Central Park thing and the thing in the gym this rising cauldron, this heating cauldron of racial strife. Let's get to the ideas. They are various and sundry. There is the reality of racial injustice in the United States of America. There's also a subset reality of that that is police racial 
injustice. And then recognizing that not all police problems are race-based. Sometimes it's police incompetence. And then you have to balance that with the reality that no, no one hates bad police more than good police. And then we get even further the, into the discussion. It's going to be about protests and the difference between protests and riots and the destruction of property and the morality and immorality and ethics of that. And then we'll finish with this question. Is there any hope for unity? And how can we find it if there is any hope? That is the table set before us. We will take our first break when we come back. As humbly as I know how, I'm going to try to help us all have a better conversation about race, Christian ethics, and the United States of America. We'll get started when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show on His Radio Talk 91.9 and 92.9. Thank you for sticking with us here is what we're doing on the show today. We're trying to be peacemakers, trying to be change makers, in part by fixing our own minds and helping ourselves have better conversations, particularly around the topics that are being generated by the killing of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and now the the unrest we're seeing in places like Minneapolis and Atlanta, and the response thereto. To do that, we cannot think about teams, good guys and bad guys. We have to think about each individual idea that leads to that event and trying to keep them separate where they need to be separate. So let's get moving. First, there is a core reality here of racial injustice. A core reality that, in the United States of America, it is just easier to be a white person. And that it is, there's some natural challenges to being black in America. This should be inarguable. The, the data is there. The experience is there. The anecdote is there. The evidence is there. That should not be a controversial thing for me to say. It does not minimize that there is poverty in white communities. It does not minimize that there is... Uh, that. There's more white people on food stamps than black people or any other group. Like None of that is minimized. I'm not saying it's easy to be white in America. I'm saying of all the choices, that is the one that's the, the ethnic group that has the most advantages. I have in the past on the show, but let's pretend you don't remember, talked about white privilege and uh, with the illustration of right privilege, that the, the world was set up for right-handed people, that very literally... The language is written from left to right, so we never smudge our hands. But ask, ask a left-handed person about having to write the English language. Ask a left-handed person about the desks they had in school because the desks were made for right-handed people. Ask the left-handed person about trying to find products like scissors that match their hands. And they have to find, find very specialty things. In a, a much more intense situation, that is often how a lot of African-American people feel about living in, in the United States of America, that it wasn't made for them. The culture wasn't made for them with their considerations. It was primarily made by white people, and therefore more comfortable for white people. I like using that illustration of the right-handedness because it, it also means that it's not necessarily anyone's fault, that it's the way that the world 
happened. The, ma- the majority culture created systems and structures and thoughts and philosophies, and that's just how it worked out. And so I, I, that helps to not then just blame some people for doing the wrong thing. But the, the core idea, is there racial injustice? Yes, and it should not be controversial. We see it in how black people interact with the police. There's, there's data to suggest a lot of that. I, you know, there's this, this Harvard professor who is quite popular right now in conservative circles, and I, I don't have a lot of criticism for him. His name is Roland Fryer. And if you want to uh, go look at his stuff, I think it is interesting. I think he broke the record for the youngest person who has ever tenured at Harvard. I think he was 30 years old when he got tenure at Harvard. And he's an African-American professor there who does a lot of criminal justice statistics. And very interestingly, you will find that when you do it per capita, when you look at statistics per capita, that black people and white people aren't more likely to be shot by police or have a violent interaction with police. That, uh, that isn't the, uh, the, the coordinating factor. Now, if you look at it not per capita, if you just consider all of the black people in the country versus all the white people in the country, yes, black people have way more interactions with police. But when you're talking about, uh, when you even it out, if 100 white people had an interaction with police or 100 black people had interaction with police, the outcomes are about the same. Because what we find is the actual key factor is poverty. When we get from the, the Harvard statistics, the the best indicator of whether or not you're going to have interaction with police is not your race, it's your education status, how much education you got, and how much income you had. And so then that actually actually layers on a, a, a piece of racial injustice going back. Why are African Americans per capita more in poverty? Well, there's some systemic injustice and disadvantage from history. And so there's, there should be a reality here, even outside of police interaction, that the things that lead to, to more p- police interaction and the things that then therefore lead to more police altercation, things like poverty and education, that, that those are caused by some inequities in the system from the beginning. So we have racial injustice. That's true. That connects then to police racial injustice that there are that this is real it's a real thing that we have a problem it appears from the anecdote not necessarily statistics that when officers interact with people of color there's there is a different level of aggression willing to be used but at the same time I did just give you the statistics and we don't we don't need to add that kind of, of wood to this fire. There's already a bunch of strife around the topic. We don't need to then specify it specifically to police because, again, when you look at statistics from Roland Fryer from Harvard, per capita, it's not the same. What we, what we know is it's something even deeper than the police. If you think racial police injustice is the problem, you're only seeing the surface. It's actually way deeper than police injustice based on race. It's a bigger problem than that. So there's racial injustice and how it, that there's a bigger problem underneath that shouldn't be directly apply, applied to police because what we have that seems to be more of a reality is police 
incompetence. I already said on the show no one dislikes bad police more than good police, but this is one of the core problems that we have in criminal justice is the same thing with every kind of job. Think about your job and whatever you do. 90% of them are good, right? 90%, 95% of people who do what you do are good at it. 80%, 70%, pick a number. Even if they're not great at it, you would say 90, 95% of the people who do what you do are at least decent-hearted people who are trying their best. But in every field, from congressman, Supreme Court justice, to McDonald's drive through worker, some percentage of all of those fields and everyone in between are really bad people. And police officers are not exempt from that. There are some really bad people who are police. I would argue it's a field that would even attract some of the worst of us. In that, and when I say worst of us, I don't mean criminal. I mean, consider what, who it might attract. That the idea is you are the authority. We give you the gun, we give you the badge, and everyone's supposed to defer to you. And then we, we train police as you, you are not here to protect and serve. That's not your job. You don't protect people and serve people. You're the enforcer. That's, that's your job. That's what you actually do. That's going to attract sometimes a certain group of people who very much value being deferred to, that they love the power. They're, it's going to attract some of those folks. I look at police incompetence more broadly because that is often, I think, what's causing what happens in the racial world. I say we have racial injustice, but that doesn't have to necessarily be the reason behind the police interactions. Sometimes the police interactions is incompetence. It's not malice. I think about... uh, His name escapes me right now. Uh, I, I think maybe the worst police shooting I've seen the last few years was a white guy in his own house on the floor, or maybe he was in someone else's apartment, he's literally begging for his life, almost sobbing, begging for his life. His hands are above his head. He starts to try to, his pants are coming down. He he doesn't have a belt on. And as he's crawling on the floor, he's face down on the floor, begging for his life. He tries to have some dignity by pulling his pants up over his behind, and he is shot multiple times. That wasn't a, a racial issue, that's an incompetence issue. It's also an issue of, how, again, how we've trained cops. This is another thing I've said on the show at least 10 times since it's been on the air. We have to change the ethic when it comes to police. The ethic is, if you feel threatened, kill whatever threatens you. Just unload until you don't feel threatened anymore. And what I would say to police is, I, I do mean this. I am grateful for your service. But we can't do that as policy. Ultimately, police, the police is the government. And what we're saying then is that if an agent of the government feels threatened, they should be able to kill the private citizen if they feel threatened. And my answer to that is no. That is not how that should work at all. If you're an agent of the government, you, you, don't, you aren't deputized as better than the rest of us. And so I, I need abundance of caution before you make a decision that ends someone's life. And if someone says, well, I'm not comfortable with that, it makes me feel unsafe, that my ethic needs to be that I'm absolutely sure before I pull the, uh, squeeze the trigger, well, what I would say to you, sir or madam, is you don't need to be an officer. There's a lot of other jobs for you to do, but this isn't the one for you. 
Because if you're willing to kill at the feeling of threat, you don't. You are not one of our betters. You're not one of the best of us, and you need to not be on the police force. Now, I, w- I got to come back around and say, there's a lot of good police. I would argue it's probably 90% or more. But we have an issue with police incompetence. Take again to, to try to illustrate that all of these police interactions don't have to be racial, which does not minimize the idea of what I started with. I started with there is real consequential racial inequality, racial inequity. It's there. It needs addressing. And we'll talk about that at the end. But not all the police interactions have to be chalked up to that. Consider what they did to the CNN people. We have a, a totally reasonable CNN anchor in Minneapolis asking an officer who's trying to get him to move, oh, where, you know, here, here we are with CNN, here's my credentials, where can we be? He's being very deferential right there on the air, and they just say, you're under arrest. And the, and the CNN guy actually says, what am I under arrest for? No answer. So I got cops just out on the street, arresting people, handcuffing people, and not, not providing Miranda rights, not providing any kind of reason for being arrested. You're, you, what we're telling, what that tells me is I can arrest, this is how the police work, you can arrest a CNN anchor on the street for being where you don't want them to be, but it took you a week to, to arrest the guy who suffocated a man with his knee. Yeah, we have a police problem, and I'm not saying it's mass. I, listen, I, I, every time I talk about this, I get a lot of, the police are awesome, yes, uh, police are awesome emails, and they are. Listen, they're all almost all more brave than I am. I am grateful for our police, I mean that. I need to stop and say that again. I mean that. I don't know if I have any cops that listen to me, but guys, gentlemen, ladies, I admit that. You're, you're all braver than me. You have more nobility than most of us. You, you got into it likely because you wanted to serve your community. But I don't have to tell police, they probably know better than any of us, that that is not true of all of them. There's, there's got to be a certain level of person we give a badge and a gun to. So we have real racial injustice. That happens in the police, but it doesn't have to be the core of all these interactions because often there's also police incompetence. It's not police racism. Now, here, here we go. Next chapter, next topic, next idea. I think is going to get some of you a little upset with me. We get to the protests, we get to the riots, we get to the destruction of property. Obviously, protests are no problem. I went to one, I mentioned that, downtown Greenville. Everyone behaved admirably and made a point, stood in solidarity around the desire for justice for people who are victimized by the criminal justice system. It's in the First Amendment. I'm a First Amendment guy. If, I'm, if anyone you listen to is a constitutionalist, that's me. But there is a line that we pass. And the same way with moral authority, I can condemn morally and through a biblical worldview what happened. I can condemn the people who did what they did to Ahmaud Arbery, who did what they did to George Floyd and a bunch of other names I could, I could give you. I can, with the same moral clarity from a Christian worldview, say that the looting of a target, the burning down of an auto zone, the destruction of Twin Lake Dental, which was, they destroyed a dental office, destroying a Wells Fargo bank, burning down a 
a tax service and destroying your local library that all of those are immoral, wrong, and they are not to be excused by any of the excuses that I'm hearing. I see everybody sharing Chris Cuomo's monologue on CNN that this is, that, 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 that behavior is in some way justified because of the level of anger. And I see that on social media from people that I like and respect that make excuses for that behavior because of the anger and the fear that comes from generations of injustice. But surely, two rights, two wrongs, excuse me, do not make a right. And there is no excuse for it. There is reason for it, but reasons aren't excuses. There is, should be, and George Floyd's family has come out and said this, and I love them so much for it. You know what George Floyd is not remembered by? You breaking the windows of the College Football Hall of Fame and going in to get the gear you want. You know what he's not remembered well by? You going into Target taking a TV, the latest 4K, and leaving. He is not well remembered by you stealing some Jack Daniels from a liquor store. These are not ways to remember the fallen. These are ways not at all designed to bring about justice. That's, that is behavior of selfishness. That's, it's narcissistic. It's destructive. It doesn't help. And I'm not sorry for saying any of that. Because we have to have a moral clarity. Going back to segment one, there are not good guys and bad guys. There are Good, there are good behaviors and bad behaviors. There are good ideas and bad ideas. And now listen to me massage that reality that I just gave you. I went ahead and said there's a bunch of bad cops, but they don't, they don't represent everybody. There's also a bunch of looters and criminals that should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law for the destruction they caused in Minneapolis and Indiana. They should be punished to the full extent of the law for the things they stole and looted. And they don't represent 90% of protesters. We got a minority of cops that are creating a, a really bad environment for all cops. And then you have a minority of people protesting that are actually committing crimes and they're making it hard for protesters. We don't have to judge the entire group by their worst actors. We don't have to do that and I refuse to do that. So I look at protesters and go, I know you guys don't aren't looting. I know that's true. Now, could you condemn the folks who are just destroying property, burning things down, and stealing? And to officers, I'm not condemning all of you. You better know. I, I hope you know that I know that it's a minority of officers that do the terrible things and have the terrible attitudes of these types of perpetrators that we've seen or we saw with George Floyd. Can you say out loud that you'll condemn those police, though? Because we could all use that kind of moral clarity, because it is, that's the moral clarity that I will always provide on this show. I, I, I look at an O'Reilly's auto parts being torn down, a liquor store being robbed, a Dollar General being almost destroyed in Minneapolis. And people want me to feel some kind of compassion and empathy towards how frustrated must you be to do such a thing? That is not an excuse. Your sadness and frustration do not justify crime. And that's, it's not okay. It's not okay for, it's not okay for a second. So, not all protesters are criminal actors. Not all cops are racist killers. There is obvious racial injustice 
some of that is perpetrated by the police, but we also need to recognize that there is police incompetence at blame for a lot of these issues. And there's a good reason to protest here, but the moment it goes into the destruction of property and rioting, we have now reached into immorality, in part because God is not the author of chaos. When we come back, those are the events and the ideas. We ask this question, can we find any unity? And then I want to do some other things. Got some other things on the show I want to get to. We'll do that. We'll get started when you come back for the rest of the Corey True Act Show. Welcome back for the final segment of the Corey True Act Show. I have tried very hard to not do self-promotion during this episode, and I won't. I will just give you an announcement. I am preaching all of the Sundays in the month of June. So uh, if you are churchless or without a church home in the upstate of South Carolina, you can join us at Beachwood Church on Sunday mornings at 1030. We would love to have you. I will also be posting those sermons as I continue through the Gospel of Mark. I'll be posting those sermons here on the podcast feed. All right, we've done people and events. We've done ideas behind all of the, the racial strife that has dominated the news. Really the only thing that could get us out of dominating COVID news, right, is what has been happening in racial strife. And so we come to that question, is there any way to find unity? Is there any way out of this? How can we address it? Well, I've got a couple thoughts, uh, a, few there, a few thoughts there for you. I'll try to go fast because I want to do other stuff on the show today. One, especially for the believer, we look to Scripture for our authority. And I go back through that list. Well, what, what, do, what do we have as a problem? Well, there's racial injustice. It exists. It's real. It primarily comes, I think, I think and the data will show from historic poverty and education deficits that are the fault of those who are in power. And so we look to Scripture in especially places like Amos. We look to places like those minor prophets where God has a clear, a, a clear command that part of doing justice is by finding the, the policies and those, those, those who have power, who are using their power to, to keep it. That's the purpose of having power is to keep power, to curb the effect they have on others. It's also a call in racial injustice to personal responsibility and personal activism. We find when Jesus says something like, I'm doing my best to quote, that what you've done for the least of these, you have done to me. And the least of these would be those who are in any way oppressed by a system. So it's certainly activism talking towards the corridors of power for policy change. It is also change in our personal lives, our personal willingness to sacrifice and how we behave in the world. When we look at the problem biblically of police incompetence, well, we recognize that in Romans, in in Romans you're going to get that the that governments are instituted among men biblically to punish evil and do good. So there is on my side of these debates, I've seen a lot of abolish the police. That's a more libertarian position that now liberals are picking up on because because it has a racial tinge to it. But ultimately, left-wingers love the police because they are the government. The police are the government. They're the ones that enforce what the government wants. And so I've got some folks who just really love the police and some that want to abolish the police. Well, biblically, we speak into it to say, well, the law enforcers are given by God, instituted by God, and what we want is better ones. 
We want a better law enforcement. We want more requirements. We want better interview processes. We want better training. We want more more uh, requirements and uh, qualifications because having a police force is a biblical thing, and we want the best one possible if we're if we're going to empower them with some kind of authority over the rest of us. We look biblically at things like protests and recognize that well, this looks like something that biblically we can get behind as the as people, as even Paul would use his citizenship to justify his appeals to his government. But we can also then see that God is not the author of chaos, that there is condemnation for those that would behave in ways that hurts others and hurts people's other people's interests. So there's not a place biblically for the riots. And so we, we inform all of that biblically first and then come back to this question. Then what can unify us as a people? Well, here would be my dream, I guess. Outside of, well, everyone repents of their sin and follows after Christ. And then we're all unified. Like, that would be my perfect world. Recognizing that that's probably not what's going to happen. Then I go here. I'd love to be able to unify around life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I would love to unify around the Bill of Rights. Those first ten amendments that we inculcate our people with those values. And when I say our people, I mean red and yellow, black and white. I mean lower class, middle class, upper class. That every income level and ethnic group and religious group that we are unified in this as Americans. That no matter what else you belong to, and even if you belong to something like I would, Christianity, that I'm much more of a Christian than I am an American... That as we operate here as citizens, we value these things, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the freedom to believe what you believe, the freedom to say what you believe, the freedom to gather together with others to, to, uh, to, for the redress of grievances, to, to ask for, for changes, to, uh, to gather together with others to amplify your own voice, that the federal government should do less and states should do more, that your local community matters and what's happening in your state capital or your federal capital in Washington, D.C., these are the these are the principles, even here in criminal justice, that we would go to the Fourth Amendment and say, one of the things that we're unified around is government, you shouldn't be able to search my stuff and take my stuff in an investigation without some kind of warrant. And even if you fi- get that warrant, you find something, well, you can't make me self-incriminate, and if you do convict me or, or you... you uh, you accuse me of something, then I want a jury in front of my peers, and if I get convicted, that's now we're on the Seventh Amendment, you can't use uh, cruel and unusual punishment. Like These are the unifying things. Life, that we all believe we have a right to our lives that should not be taken by government or by anyone else. That we have a right to our liberty to go and operate and be ambitious and entrepreneurial and try to make something of ourselves. This is turning to, I was about to start singing a, a song from Alexander Hamilton, the musical, or Hamilton the musical, that we don't want to throw away our shot, right? This is, we want our liberty to go pursue what we can, the pursuit of happiness. And the only way I can think to do that is my second idea. So what do we find principles in? Well, I think it would be life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and then the Bill of Rights. And then my second idea was, well, how do I address, address the actual problem of underlying racial inequity? This is maybe a little too simplistic, but I actually think the, the best thing we could do to address it going forward 
is education policy. Because again, what, we're fi- what we find in the statistics and the data is the thing that's most likely predictive of you interacting with the police is income level. And there's a direct correlation between education and income. The more education you have, the more income you make on, uh, not just on average, but almost all the time. There's very few exceptions to that rule. The more education you have, the more income you make. And we have a really bad education system. We have an education system that is particularly bad for those in low-income neighborhoods and minority neighborhoods. It's a, a recurring cycle that keeps creating the same problems. I say this to activists. If you want to get into activism towards solving the problem long-term, get involved in education policy. Get involved in having more school choice. Get involved in a situation where African-American parents have more choices in the schools where they send their kids. This would be a way to address your racial inequity. And by the way, it goes to my first point. Well, how do we unify? One of the things we should be doing in schools is unifying around those principles. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness in the first 10 amendments. I was talking to someone here recently about how I've, I've said in the past, and I still believe this, that I don't think anyone should be allowed to vote unless they can pass a, a certain civics test. You should, you should know some things about the country you're voting in. And, but if, if we would do something like that, at least in school, maybe not to have to vote, then at least we would all come out with some kind of idea of who we are as a people. Like, What does it even mean to be an American? I, I would love for someone to be able to say, oh, I know. What it means to be an American is that we're the people that for life and for liberty and to pursue our happiness, to, to pursue to pursue those things that would give us what we think would give us fulfillment, it's that we, we believe in freedom for the individual. That's what it means to be an American. So you do that by education policy if you could do it in the schools, but also you will, you will lift oppressed communities by education. You will do that. That's what, that would be the way to get involved. Another idea, I think we need to find some unity around this, some police disempowerment. Police are too powerful. They have too much authority. I'm not for the abolition, but I am for the mitigation of police power. You know, I I wanted to bring these two stories back in for this reason. So at the top of the show, I mentioned the thing in Central Park, and I mentioned what the woman who had the dog off the the leash and the the altercation she had with that African-American man, and then also this guy in a gym who saw the gym being improperly used and and challenge the people improperly using it. What happened there is two things. First, if everyone would just follow the rules, then it, then things would be better. Uh, if you listen to anyone, any podcast, any radio host, no one loves following the rules more than I do. I love rules, and I love following them. And so this thing that happens in Central Park, it doesn't happen if, guess what? That woman would just follow the rules. You know what doesn't happen in that gym? with the older white guys saying that these four black guys, they're not all supposed to be in the gym. Well, they should have followed the rules. Everyone follow the rules, and we won't have to have these kinds of altercations. But what happened in both cases is citizens tried to be the police. You had this African-American man saying to this woman, you're not following the rules, so I'm going to enforce the law now. And we have this white guy in the gym for these four black guys in the gym saying, I'm going to enforce the rules now. And we might do that because, in part, we maybe we have an issue with police, but I know this, we're not supposed to be the police. That's not the role that we have. So we have, it would be better 
if we could have a, a healthy relationship with police, and one of the ways to do that would be to disempower them. And this should be popular across ideologies. If I could get this into the heads of conservatives, we'd make a ton of progress. The police are the government. In every other way, conservatives say they're not a huge fan of government power and government overreach. Okay, so police kill people sometimes, and that's the government killing people. There's a justified way for governments to kill people. It's you arrest somebody, they get a jury or their peers, you get a conviction, they get an appeal, maybe another appeal, and then you can put them to death for, the, for their crime of murdering someone. But we ha- every time you see a cop kill somebody, the government has killed somebody. And so that should, that should appeal to conservatives. Hey, we should, they should be not so powerful. They should have less authority. This should also appeal to conservatives in this way. A lot of times you have cops who are interacting with people over little things that probably shouldn't even be illegal. We have too many regulations. We have too many laws that are causing more police interaction. And as tensions build, you're only going to have more of an, a chance, a higher chance, that those interactions end up being really ugly. So you talk about wanting smaller government. Let's have fewer laws, fewer regulations. I mean, we had um, the, the one Eric Garner. The one, uh, that's the one. Eric Garner in New York City. They were, essentially those cops, were trying to enforce a tax law. He was selling loose cigarettes, and the reason you're not allowed to do that is then you don't have to pay the exorbitantly high taxes on cigarettes in New York City. And so the, the consequence of that is that cops then end up suffocating, well, he ends up having a heart attack because of the altercation, but the cops caused it by, what were they doing? Trying to enforce tax law. The Philando Castile case is ultimately police trying to enforce their revenue building scheme. He, he, they were enforcing a traffic law to raise money for the government, and it went sideways. So we have this argument here that should appeal to conservatives. The government should have less power and fewer laws, fewer regulations for them to go enforce. And that already appeals to the left in some ways. But we should be able to find some unity about police disempowerment. One specific idea that I thought of here recently is I I found out that there's apparently insurance policies that police police uh, precincts can buy purchase against things like this so uh, if 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 one of the members of the police force kills somebody and then the police department gets sued for you know, that that person's like whatever the loss would be to that family the the income loss going forward but ultimately that is something that the taxpayer has to pay for and so Basically, the, the people of Minneapolis are subsidizing the police department of Minneapolis to buy insurance policies against the fact that one of their officers might kill someone. Well, that shouldn't be. There, there's got to be a funding mechanism that sets, it up, that sets that up differently. That no, we the taxpayer, we're not funding you in that way. You got to buy your own insurance policies. Or if you're going to run without insurance, maybe we should outlaw those kinds of insurance policies so that it says... Two police departments, yeah, you better be really careful. This whole shoot first thing, where if you feel threatened, that you just go ahead and shoot, you're going to want to stop doing that as a matter of policy, not just because it's immoral, but now we have a financial incentive that you can wreck the police department for decades because of what it's going to cost you to pay off this family 
for what you've done. So now, even on the air, I think I just came up with a different idea. It shouldn't be that they have to buy their policy in some way that it's not on the taxpayer dime. It's that those, sh- those policies should not exist. Just sh- they shouldn't exist at all. So as to give incentive. Okay. I didn't get to the other stuff I wanted to do on the main 50-minute show. Uh, so I'll, I'll do that in um, overtime and do some bonus content here for the podcast listeners. You radio listeners, um, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, CoreyTruax.com, lots of places to find it. Hope you will. You can listen to the bonus content. But I, I, here's my desire, my, here's my hope, that after this, you recognize you don't have to be on a, t- a side, you don't have to be on a team, you can just be on the side of, the team of right and wrong, and then have a better and healthier conversation where we understand the struggles, the fears from those that we're talking to and try to help navigate this conversation with even some of the scripture I've given you, some of the biblical content there because we, especially believers, we got to be having better conversations, be a conduit for understanding and reconciliation. And how about this for an action item? Pray like crazy for your country and pray for peace. In the final minute of his radio airtime on 91.9 and 92.9, uh, this will be airing on June the 6th. I don't want to let June the 6th go by without recognizing what happened on June 6th, 1944, where the bravest men in the, in, in the history of our country, I would even put them above my favorite generation of Americans, which is the revolutionary generation, where... Hundreds of thousands of men landed at Normandy under General Dwight Eisenhower's command and started the slow process of taking back Western Europe from tyranny and evil and giving it back over to freedom and liberality. It's one of the greatest achievements of mankind. It's also one of the reasons that you can love the country that you are in because we have done so much good on this planet, and we recognize that and thank the men and women who are part of that generation on June 6th, there in 1944. We'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love. Hi, podcasters. I'm now, looking at my, I'm now looking at my prep sheet and recognizing I didn't have that much more to say, but a little bit. I essentially just wanted to give you some good COVID news. Now that we're getting plenty of data in, it does appear that the coronavirus death rate is less than 1%. And that is really good news because at the beginning of this, guys, I should talk about that. My attitude changed fairly drastically over the period of COVID-19, like going all the way back to, uh, I guess that would have been early March maybe, when we started really started making policy changes about it. I wasn't talking about it on the show, if you recall. I, I didn't talk about it at all and made a point about not talking about it because the first time I talked about it, I came on and said, why on earth would you care what I think? What do I know about pandemics? None of us know anything about pandemics. And so I started being quiet. I didn't say anything to anybody. But internally, I'll admit, I, guys, I thought it was going to be bad. I mean, I was listening to the news and I thought, I mean, this could be a million people or more. I don't. I, w- I actually was wearing a mask. I was, I was being careful out in the world. I I really thought it was going to be bad. And by being careful, you know, I was still going to the gym, but I was very mindful about hand sanit- hand sanitizing and 
not touching my face and everything we were being told because I, I had some nerves around it. And over time, as I started getting more information and more data and seeing the world around me, I found the information led me to the feeling, facts facts should inform our feelings, that it goes, oh, I guess, that I went, oh, I guess I, guess I was wrong. All right. This is, well, praise the Lord that it wasn't as bad as we thought. And in one of the ways that I now feel really good about what, what we've done is it's less than, your, your chance of dying is less than 1%. And if you take the older people out, if you take the 70 and, 70 and up crowd out, we're down to like a tenth of a percent. I mean, it happens. People younger than 50, 60, 70 die. It's just really rare that we do that. Now I've got synapses firing and more um, things are coming to mind. I was listening to a discussion about college football not reopening by, as, a, as a chance or like the college is not reopening. And it, occur, it occurred to me, like this is, it shows how much we misunderstood COVID-19 because we shut down schools, for example, but we, sh- we shut down schools when we knew, even, even though we already knew, this thing doesn't really affect kids that much. Like it's not dangerous for them. The point was if they all congregate together and share COVID-19 or they're still going to go see grandma and they're all going to deliver COVID-19 to their grandmother. So closing schools made sense because you don't want them taking it home to more vulnerable people. Colleges though, that makes no sense at all. Most colleges are destination places. You leave home altogether. You move in. You're only around other 18 to 25 year olds, maybe like those who've been around me. Maybe they're in the grad school crowd. So none of you are really at high risk to to die. And then the only older people you might interact with is professors. And so maybe you let the professors teach from home, do videos, something like that, something like that. Like the, the college students aren't aren't exposing older people to the to the COVID nineteen they have, and so it made no sense. So all that to say, that's really really good news. Um, we, sh- we I'm not going to say dodged a bullet, but it's not nearly as bad as we thought it was going to be. We also are seeing the effects of like the, the lock. It, it might end up being, and this is no one's fault. I want to be clear, this is no one's fault, but it might end up being that the lockdown, like the, the cure is worse than the problem because we, we might have overestimated how bad COVID was. And again, that's no one's fault. I would have rather have been overly cautious. But we, what we have, uh, what, what we have now is a couple, well, I'll pull it up here. I was trying to, trying to do it from memory. But it's right here, vital population. This is from The Hill. We're now seeing people putting off uh, chemotherapy. So we had um, 80% of brain surgery cases were skipped we have about 85% of acute stroke and heart attack patients missed their only chance for treatment, therefore dying, because they didn't they, would, they didn't they didn't want to go to the hospital and risk COVID. Uh, there were some others, so we have consequences. There are consequences to those actions, and so it's good news on the COVID front. I wanted to share that with you here in the um, yeah in the bonus time. And then the other update is update again that I know none of you um, care about, but here you go. I have only gotten positive feedback about my tattoo idea. In fact, Cody Fields mentioned him on the show a couple weeks ago um, from Westminster Doxology Podcast. He encouraged it, and I, I believe he has enough 
tattoos and or piercings to be considered an expert on the, on the matter. Um, and so he encouraged a certain time period of from the moment of idea to actually getting the tattoo. There should be a certain amount of time that goes by. And I thought that was very wise. So I'm, I'm going to let some time go by and then go do it. I think that was the other thing I wanted to do uh, was, was tattoo talk because let me see if I can find it. I, I love that we're here on, um, we're, we're live and I can be less, <laughs> can be less prepared. Charlie sent me um, type info with the search engine for tattoos, music or barbells or weightlifting or animals. Oh, so he just sent me a research, a resource where you can type in what you're looking for and it sends you some ideas for tattoos. Um, so thanks Charlie for that. That actually was a, it's a very cool tool as I started using it. And then I got an, email from Wayne discur- he, there was the when I said almost exclusively uh, exclusively positive feedback on the tattoo idea my father I think playfully was not a fan of me getting a tattoo I mean he's he has a he has a daughter who already has one he lived it'd be fine um, but I got from Wayne something I wanted to bring up and can't find it because I am disorganized when we're in overtime. But Wayne pulled together some scripture that I wanted to go over that uh, makes an argument about um, makes an argument about tattoos that maybe it's something that we should not do. Let me get there. I got it. Found it. Here's my email box. <clears throat> All right. Uh, he writes, Corey, in, in the event you have not recorded this coming Saturday's program, I haven't. Here, see, here I'm doing it now. Um, here are some scripture verses recording the sin of tattoos. Re- excuse me, regarding the sin of tattoos. First, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19, Know you not that your body is the temple of God. Yep, I, I'm aware. It is one of the reasons that I am into fitness. Of course, part of the reason is because I'm vain, and I'm working on that. I, I'm so vain, I actually think that song is about me. If you don't get that reference, you are too young to be listening to my show. Um, but uh, that, yeah, that verse, know you're not that your body is a temple, the temple of God. Yes, so this would be um, good reason to take care of your health. Uh, a tattoo, um, and, and also not just your health, but how you behave, that you, what, what we're saying there is your body is this unique, incredible thing now that God used to dwell in one place. He would dwell in the Ark of the Covenant. He would dwell in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Then he would dwell in the most holy place in the temple. The beauty of Jesus ascending into heaven and the Holy Spirit coming on believers is that now God dwells with us. So we are the temple of God. And it's a good reason to take care of yourself. I would just argue that the tattoo is not a method whereby we are marring the temple of God. Genesis 1, 27, he quotes next, says, So God created man in his own image. That being the case, why would you deface the image of God with a tattoo? Because I don't agree that it's defacing by any stretch. Um, I'm being a little flippant here, but I don't think it's any more a, uh, a defacing than some people's facial hair and or haircuts. Like it's, especially now with removal the way it works, if you wanted to remove it for some reason, it's not even all that expensive. I mean, it's, it's expensive, but not crazy expensive. Uh, so I, know, I, I think we just disagree on that that core thing. You're saying it is defacing the uh, the the body. I don't think it's defacing the body. I don't I don't think that's the definition. Um, then Romans fourteen twenty one. It, this one I I do I find some sympathy with the argument. Um, so Wayne, this one I think is 
a decent argument to bring up. Romans 14 says it is good to either to neither eat flesh nor drink wine or anything whereby your brother stumbles or is offended. So the argument being, if it causes disunity, even if you're right and the other person is wrong, even if even if my position on tattoos is right, and the the version there's a part of Christianity that's very uncomfortable with it, do uh, do what you can not to offend everybody. And so if that means not drinking wine, then don't drink wine. If that means... So I would just argue this. The idea of... I think it's probably contextually. Because I think about my ministry. I, I hate to even say my ministry because I don't... I I preach 12 times a year. I, I sing songs at church. Like I lead. But I, mean, I, I don't have... Again, I think I said at the beginning of the show, I don't have delusions of grandeur about my own significance. But where I do have significance, people aren't offended. It's not an offense people take. Um, again, more than half my church has tattoos. The group of people that are still offended by it, I, I would I would just say I don't really interact with them to offend them. And second, I think there is some sort of strategic things here about hiding them in that like I'm not, I'm not talking about getting a sleeve of tattoos from my wrist to my elbow where it's almost almost literally impossible to hide a tattoo on your back that can be seen at the beach with that's about the only time um, will offend no one and cause no one to have any kind of stumbling block. So uh, I appreciate the input. I mean that. It gives me a chance to to talk through some of those issues. Um, all right. I think that's what I'm going to leave it there because I'm basically sure I'm going to do it now and I'm just going to allow that time to go by that Cody mentioned to make sure I'm doing the right thing but then I think I will have tattooed on my back. No, you move. And I love that quote. Listeners, friends, family, thank you for listening. It means the world to me. I love seeing that, seeing that number every week of how many people have streamed the show. I'm grateful for it. I will uh, say adieu for this week. I'll be back with another new edition next week. And I, until then, everybody, peace and love.